Well, good morning. I say that again after pulling double duty today. That's that you would take God's word into your hand and open to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. We move into week seven of our series. Now, remember, this was intended to be a eight-week series. And we're, got, we're going to get to verse 13, so we've got about a third of the way to go, so uh, you can throw out the week 8 series out of uh, Romans 1. And as you turn to Romans 1, we have been spending time these last seven weeks looking at Paul's opening statement to the Romans. He would write for 16 chapters one of the greatest doctrinal theses of all uh, that Scripture has. It has been called the Christian Manifesto, this letter of Romans. And we see that the beginning part of his writing all centers on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about the gospel. And Paul starts out there in verses 2 through 7 saying that the passion of his ministry, his whole reason for existence, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then as we learned last week, starting in verse 8, he says that the passion behind his ministry, the, the thing that gets him motivated to move, the, 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 the theme is the gospel, but his passion is the people of this world, including the people in Rome that he's about to talk with. And in our passage today, we are going to get a glimpse at what I want to call a true and real fellowship. He's going to tell us how we as Christians are to spend time with one another, loving one another, caring for one another, nurturing one another in the way that Christ has commanded us to. So I'm going to ask that you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to again start in verse 1 and move our way to our text this morning. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. This gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to the human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called uh, to Jesus Christ, called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Here's our text this morning, verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father God, bless your time this morning in this word. I pray that our hearts would be moved in a special way this morning to learn and and to discern how we can be better at fellowshipping with one another. Father, I pray that this would be a place that loves one another, that this would be a place that the world would see that we are Christians because of our love. Lord, let this be our textbook this morning. Allow this to be our guide, your living and active and holy word of God. I pray that there will be no distractions. I pray that our hearts will be open and that the Spirit will move in each of our hearts, searing our conscience so that we may be able to live upright and holy lives amongst one another. We give you the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our text this morning, we find Paul speaking on the subject of fellowship. Now you say, well... 
Okay, fellowship is something important. We talk about fellowshipping a lot. That's not a word that you hear very often outside of church walls, this term fellowship. We hear partying, we hear hanging out, we don't hear this word fellowship, but that's what Paul is talking about this morning. But sadly in our church culture, fellowship has become something that is terribly lax in our way of doing church. We come into uh, the church service and we listen to a sermon, we sing some songs, we maybe say hello to a couple people, and then many times we find ourselves on the way out, getting back in the car. If you will, church attendance has become just a time frame where you go and you listen and you're taught and you sing and then you leave. But the Bible makes it very clear that fellowship is something more than that. It's not something you put in your schedule, but it is something that you make a priority and a passion if you call yourself a Christian. That's what your passion should be, to hang out, to party, to involve yourself in the lives of other believers. I want you to imagine for a moment a church in a way that you never have thought about it before. Imagine if you came to Village Bible Church and there was no building Imagine for a moment that there was no paid staff. Imagine, if you will, that you didn't have your own Bible. Maybe the church just had a couple pages or a certain book of the Bible to study from. Imagine for a moment that uh, Tim doesn't do all the talking, the worship team doesn't do all the singing, but in fact, all of you are involved in a communication free-for-all. You have no set programs. There are no committees. Can I get an amen to that? There is no constitution. A hearty amen for that. I'm just kidding. We're working on the constitution as elders, and it's getting a little old for us. How about no bulletins? That would free up Carol's time, not have to worry about a bulletin. Does that sound strange to you to have a church like that? But you know what? That was the church for the first 300 years after Christ left this earth. He didn't have, the church didn't have all the stuff that we have. The, many times the things that we think make a church a church. In fact, Barna says that one of the key ways that people find out if they like a church or not is all about the things that I've just talked about. That it doesn't involve anything in regards to relationships, but it's all about the program that you've set up. Just as you would pick out a restaurant or, or a... Um, a grocery store or a um, uh, convenience store or whatever that you would do in your consumer mind, that you would pick out something. We pick out churches in that way. Instead of saying, what will the fellowship be like? You know, churches in the first 300 years were close-knit families. They were living room-centered. They were knit-up organisms of people that knew one another. They knew each other's backgrounds. They knew one another's victories and struggles. They knew their dreams and their heartaches. These weren't just people they went to church with. These were people they lived their lives with. You know, they didn't need hype because they had heart. They didn't need programs because the love that they had, they didn't have to go and tell people to reach out and to make sure you invite people to this event or that one because the love that they had and the love they had for their church was magnetic enough. They didn't have to worry about budgets. They didn't have to worry about tithes and offerings as much because they had very few expenses. They would take care of a a widow. They would take care of an orphan. They would take care of the poor. And they may help out a visiting missionary as he travels through their town. They didn't have to talk about commitment because as soon as they would begin to talk about their commitment, the fear of wild beasts and torture and chains would lead anybody who isn't committed to the cause of Jesus Christ right out of their midst. And yet they grew. The Bible says in the book of Acts that they grew. Their number grew daily. Talk about multiplication. How did they have that happening without the outreach marketing going on in their church? They did it because people fell in love with the fellowship that they had. They were changed by Jesus Christ and they got involved in this community of believers called the church and it changed who they were. That was their only asset and everything on that was the reality. James Roots of uh, a church ministry group out in California says that the church is a family. God is the father and his children doing what good families do, and that is sharing their hearts and living lives together. So how do we get there? 
How do we get to this type of fellowship? How does Village Bible Church, as large as it has become, how do we involve ourselves in community that will change lives? Well, we first need to look at a couple opening thoughts before we even get to our outline this morning. The first thing we must ask is, what is the definition of fellowship? I want you to write uh, down some of these thoughts. We get, of course, our English word from fellowship from the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, many of you know that word, you've heard that word spoken in messages before. This word koinonia comes uh, from the origin that we get our word common. What it's saying is, is that people have things in common. Greek used to be what they called koin Greek or koine Greek from koinonia. Why? Because it was common Greek, the language of that day. But what is fellowship? Well, I've got a couple different definitions. First of all, fellowship is defined as a friendly relationship, a friendly relationship or some sort of companionship. It's an association of people having similar tastes and interests. But based on this definition, I think that we would find ourselves a little shallow because we could call fellowship in the community center, fellowship in our schools, fellowship in our workplaces of people we rarely know, but they like the bears and we like the bears. They like Fords and we like Fords. They've got kids and we've got kids. Therefore, we've got fellowship. I don't think that that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about our uh, job of fellowshipping. And yet we take that definition in the church and we say, well, that's it. So my job, if I am going to fellowship today, what that means is after I leave this place, what I'm going to do is grab my cup of coffee and a donut or a bagel, our carbohydrate fans, our bagel, and I'm going to start eating it. And I'm going to walk up to someone and say, hey, how are you? Nice to see you. Shake their hand, have a 30-second conversation with them, and call that fellowship. I'm sure there are some that think that and will say, I had a good day of fellowshipping if I've met with two or three people in that way. But that's not what the word koinonia means. Because when you add the depth to the Greek of the Greek language and you add the Christian truth of fellowship together, it becomes something greater than that. You and I have something in common. What is it? It is that we have been saved by grace by Jesus Christ. We have a common home that we are looking forward to. You and I look around this place and you will see the majority of these people in heaven one day. And you will spend eternity with them. What that means is we're going to change the way we live. And our ideals are going to be different than that of the world. So we come together, and it's not that we like the same car or, for, the, for that matter, the same sports team. We know that's not true. There's some pagans in our midst. But we also know that we have been changed by the same God. That we have been brought into the same family. And what that means is we are going to be accountable to one another. What that means is we are going to be uh, given the job of encouraging one another. Of helping one another be the best Christians that we can be. There's depth to this idea of fellowship. And what Paul shares with us is that fellowship is far more. When you look at the New Testament when it comes to fellowship, I want you to do a little fellowship test with me for a moment and see if this is the kind of fellowship that you involve. Because when we see Christians together in the New Testament, this is what we see. We see people provoking one another unto love and good deeds. We see people confessing their sins one to another. We see the phrase, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. We see that fellowship involves bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another to build each other up. We see that we are to be respecting those who work hard amongst us. Our fellowship is not just always good things, but it's to be warning those who are idle, encouraging the timid. It involves praying for one another that we may be healed. And it involves, and this is the one I want us to go ahead and do an object lesson on, it involves greeting one another with a holy kiss. So look to the person next to you and say, pucker up, it's time to greet each other with a holy kiss. I heard a woo, someone's in trouble. Now you say, oh, wait a minute, that's the first century. Now I know we've got different customs, but do you see the intimacy in that? There are a lot of people that would look to the person next to him and say, I'll barely shake their hand, let alone kiss them. That is the intimacy that they had as Christians. 
But in America, in our individualistic and private setting that we live in, that we have this bubble around us of our personal space, not only in our own uh, physical realm, but in the spiritual as well. There are things that, that I'll tell people, and there are things I won't. There are things that I'll share about my emotions, but I won't share this, that, and the other. And then when someone does in a small group or in a Bible study or, or in, in a midst of Christians, we sit there and say, wow, they're just letting everything hang out. They're showing all their garbage. That, that's not very wise. I think that they're closer to the biblical truth than we would ever think they are. We're just too private in our own eyes as we watch. So Paul gives us this picture. Let's look at our text this morning. Paul says, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. The first thing that we must involve ourselves in is that real fellowship begins with a desire to participate in a community of believers. There needs to be a desire to participate with a community of believers. Maybe you're here today and you've come and you've said, okay, Tim, you're telling me it's time to fellowship. And I look around and and I don't see many people that I know. And I, I don't know how to begin to get involved in, in fellowshipping, to get involved in a church. Now, there are some people who have been here a long time who just kind of sit on the sidelines and, and watch everybody do a church. One of the things that I love to do is uh, when we go to the mall or some public place, I am a people watcher. I love to watch people just sit back in a chair and watch people live life. Now, I'll tell you something, that that might be a nice hobby uh, for a weekend uh, over at the Fox Valley Mall, but that is not the way that you do church. The way you do church is you involve yourself in community with one another, but it begins, first of all, with a desire. Look at what Paul says. Paul makes it quite clear that there's a desire in his heart. In verse 11, he says, I long to see you. I long to see you. This word longing literally is the, the Greek word epipatheo. Epipatheo. Patheo means to yearn. He has a yearning. You add the term epi to that, and it adds a great intensity to that yearning. He isn't saying, well, you know, I I, kind of want to see you guys. When when I get a chance, I, I, I hope to be there. Literally, in the English, what it means is my heart is aching for the opportunity to see you. I remember when I was dating Amanda, there was an epipatheo in my heart. I longed to see her. And I would count, remember these days, I, I would count the, the hours to the time that I would see her. I would, I would be looking forward, I, even at the beginning of the day, my thought would be, I, I can't wait till I'm done with school and done with work so I can see her. Heart was yearning. Paul says, I have a desire, a deep desire to see you. He says, my heart's aching. Now understand this, he had never met most of the people that he's writing to. Think about last week, many of you, over the 200 people that are involved in small groups, many of you are in newer groups that you've never been in before, and you sit down in the living room at, at group that night, and you're going to meet the people for the very first time. And we're going around and saying your name, hi, I'm Bob, and I live in Big Rock, hi, I'm Tim, and I live in Hinkley. Tim, uh, what, you look like you have something to say. And I break out and say, I have longed to see you. I have yearned. My heart has ached to be a part of what's going on. And you know what would happen? Hey, next time, honey, don't sit next to Tim from Hinkley. He's a little crazy. He needs some friends. But you know what? Paul says, I long to see you. Is your heart laboring in that labor of love, saying, I long to see my brothers and sisters at Village Bible Church. That's where it begins. If you don't like being here, if you, if you can't get involved with the people around here, I'm going to share something. I don't want it to be harsh in any way. Then it's probably time for you to find a new church. Not because we don't want you. Please hear me. It is not because we don't want you, but you will never make it in your Christian life unless you can find a body of believers that you can involve yourself in, that you can say, I long to see them at church, whether it's on Tuesday, whether it's on Friday, whether it's on Sunday. 
And if that hasn't been the place, that you don't just stay here for the music. Don't just stay here for a personality in the church. You find a church that you can long to see the people of God, that there's a desire. Because if you don't have that, you're just going to find yourself in one service, out the other, sitting, standing, and then heading out of the service. And that's only half of what God wants for his people. Look at what he says next. He says, I, I long to see you, but this longing leads to some. Why does he want to see him? Because he wants fellowship to happen. Now, what is supposed to be going on in the area of fellowship? There are four things that you should always look at your fellowship and see. Is it biblical fellowship? Is it biblical community? Let me tell you something. Just because six or eight Christians get together does not make that godly fellowship. Just because you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, and we get together doesn't mean that we have sanctified our time as godly fellowship. There are four things I see in this text that involve godly fellowship. The first one is equipping. It's equipping. Look at what he tells them next. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. He says, I want to impart to you. This word impart literally means to share or give something that you have to someone else. He says, I want to give you something. Now, Paul uses this sharing in First Thessalonians 2.8. Paul says, we loved you so much. There's that desire that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but listen to what he says. This is what fellowship is all about. We don't just talk, even if you just get together and talk about the Bible and have a Bible study, it doesn't mean you've got fellowship. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 tells us what fellowship is. It is to not only talk about the gospel of God, but he shares to share our lives as well. You want fellowship? It's not just opening the book and saying, okay, this is what this text says. This is what this author was meaning by this. It is taking that text and saying, now I want to share how this text has changed my life. I want to share with you the areas that I've struggled with when it comes to this biblical text. Paul says, I want to equip you. I want to give you a spiritual gift. Now, what is the spiritual gift? Is it one of the ones that is listed in Romans 12? If you have the gift of leadership, then lead. If you have the gift of giving, then give generously, he says in Romans 12. Is it one of those five or six that he lists there? Probably not. Leon Morris, the great Bible commentator, says this on this phrase, some spiritual gift. He says, Paul defines this in the most general sense. And what this gift is, is a gift is anything that builds up the Christian in his or her walk with Christ. So what is our job to do? Now we know that Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says it is the role of the leaders of the church to equip the saints for works of service. But that doesn't stop with them. It's not just an elder and deacon job. It's all of us coming together with the mindset this morning, we wake up and we say, all right, my job is to equip someone in our midst with a spiritual gift. So what does that mean? You walk into this place and your desire is to build up someone else so that they can become more like Christ. When was the last time you got together with your coffee in your hand and you went and you said, I just want to share something with you, Tom. I want to share that, that, that God is with you, that God is for you, and that I know you've been struggling in the area of your job, in the area of family, but you know what? God says we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And you don't feel that way right now, Tom, but I want to tell you something. You are a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Let your conversation move from what the sports teams did. They move from what the kids did this week and move to encouraging and equipping with some spiritual gift. The next thing we see is that there's some establishing that takes place. There's some establishing. Look at verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Look at what he says. To make you strong. Why does he want to come? He wants to give him something. Why does he want to give him something? To make him strong. The word establishing, the reason why I use that word isn't just because it starts with an E, but that's what the NAS uses, which I think is a good uh, translation. It says he wants to establish you. Literally what that means is comes from the Greek word sterizo, which means to make firm, to, to make solid, to cause to be inwardly committed. What is our job when we share those words? When I share those words with, with Tom and I say he's more than a conqueror, what is that to do? That is to strengthen him inwardly. 
That means that after you have fellowship for a minute or so with an individual, that, that, that they're not walking like this anymore with their head down and their bent, uh, back bent, but they start looking up and they start saying, hey, you're right. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You're right that God says he works all things out for the good of those whom he loves and are called according to his purpose. That's right. And that he begins to get all excited because you have fellowshiped with him. Third thing we see is that it involves encouraging. It involves encouraging. Paul says that you, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul says, I want to encourage you. Now, this doesn't just mean words of affirmation. It doesn't mean walking up to someone and saying, Cara, you were great at the violin today. It was wonderful. Your prelude was great. Encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. That's important. But what Paul is saying in Romans 1 is he's saying, I want to come and I want to teach you. I want to admonish you. I want to exhort you. Paul is saying that not only should we be sharing words of affirmation, but also words for correction, words of even sometimes rebuke, words of instruction. And what Paul wants to do is come and he wants to teach them something wonderful from, the God, from God's Word. When was the last time, whether you're a teacher or not, whether you preach, whatever you do, when was the last time you walked up to a fellow believer and you said, you know what, I was reading in my Bible this last week and I want to encourage them with this. I want to share a word, a thought with them. Maybe they're struggling and you read in the Bible something that says that God's not done with them. God's, God's allowing this trial so that it will produce wonderful things. When was the last time you fellowshiped with someone by giving them a word from the Lord? The final thing we see is it involves edification or edifying, an edifying relationship. Look at what uh, he says next, that you and I may be mutually encouraged. If you underline or do anything in your Bibles, circle or underline that word mutually. What Paul is saying is he's saying, hey, I'm going to come and I want to see you. I desire to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. But listen to what he says. He says, but when I get there, I want to encourage you, I want to establish you, I want to equip you, but I'm also expecting the same from you. Now, wait a minute. This is the great Apostle Paul. Now, think if Paul came into our midst today, and he says, all right, and he wrote us a letter last week and says, I'm coming to see you, I long to see you, I desire to see you, and I'm going to be there next week. What would we do? I know what I would do. I would sit down and shut up. And I'd say, there's the, there's the music stand, Paul. Preach away. But you know what Paul says? He says, yeah, I've got the gift of preaching and teaching, and I have the, the role of, of apostle, but that doesn't mean everything stops and I do all the talking. That doesn't mean everything stops and I'm the one that does all the ministry. What he says is, I want to come and impart something to you, but I'm looking for you to impart something to me. What a reminder for us as Christians that no matter our age, no matter our biblical knowledge, no matter how long we've been a Christian or not, how long we've attended Village Bible Church, no matter all of that, that we can impart spiritual gifts to one another. And what that means is, is that we need to involve ourselves with all kinds of people and allow people to come up and share wonderful thoughts I was uh, with Keith at the hospital with Howard and Amanda this last week, and Howard is, is a wonderful guy. Just He wears everything on his sleeve. You know exactly where Howard's at. And Howard is a guy that's still uh, in, in the early stages of a Christian, and he'll tell you that. I've got a lot to learn. But as I listen to him grieve over two beautiful little girls that were delivered and are now in the hands of God, I, I was amazed at the depth of insight that God had given that man. And he says, well, I, I, nothing, nothing that the world would think is very smart. I, I don't have much of an education. And I sat there and I was amening in my heart. Sitting there, here's a guy that knows what faith is all about. Here's a guy that can't quote a lot of Bible verses. And he wouldn't be, afraid, he wouldn't be mad for me saying that. But he's got faith. And he's got a faith that can move mountains. And I can learn from that. I can learn from that. You can learn from that. My son has taught me more about theology than any theology book has because he shows me a desire to be obedient to God. He shows me a desire to be obedient, and yet I still see my own heart that is wild, just like a little boy who wants to do what is right, but the flesh pulls him to do so many other things. 
And so when I correct him, I see Almighty God, my Father in heaven, who corrects me, who loves me even though the discipline may be harsh. We can learn from one another. What a testimony. Paul doesn't think so highly of himself that he can't learn from fellow Christians. This is what fellowship is all about. Look at your areas of fellowship, whether it's in your small group, whether it's in your Bible study, whether it's in your uh, group uh, gatherings together for social events, and say, are we truly fellowshipping in a biblical way? It will involve those four things in our lives. The second thing we see this morning is that real fellowship helps develop perseverance despite closed doors. It helps develop perseverance despite closed doors. Now, we, need, we know that fellowship, what it's all about. We know the importance of it. We've, we've heard that. We know that it involves deep relationships with one another. But, but why is it so important to develop perseverance? The reason why is, is because as Christians, just as Keith was sharing today, there will be times that it won't be someone else that we're praying for on a Sunday morning. But one of these Sundays, it will be you who we are praying for. If you are a human and are living a life just like everybody else does in this world, there is going to be a day where trouble will come to your life. And for people that don't have the local church, I pity them. I pity them because there are not a group of people in their lives who are called to the same hope, who are called to the same God, who are called to the same life of faithfulness, and who are called with the living and active words of God to comfort one another when we are in need. And what fellowship is all about is it helps us develop perseverance. I know in my short time on this earth that there have been times where I have hit rock bottom. And I will tell you that it has not been my extended family that has done that, that, is not, that don't, don't know Christ. It's not my co-workers. It's not uh, the people in my social gatherings. But it is the church. It is Christians who come around me and say, let me pray for you. Let me help you. Let me bear that burden with you. Well, what does that do? It develops perseverance. It allows us to continue to go despite closed doors. Now, what's the closed door? Look at what Paul says uh, in verse, uh, let's see here, verse uh, 12. He says that there's a closed door. He says in verse 13, I'm sorry. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. Remember uh, verse 10 last week? We said that Paul had prayed a prayer, that a way would be open according to the will of God, that a door would be open that he could go to Rome. Remember, he wants to see them. He longs to see them. So he prays, God, I want to go to Rome so I can see the Romans and be engaged in ministry there. But Paul says there's been a closed door. The door has been closed. Why why can't he go? There's a couple things that I want you to pull from this idea of closed doors. The first thing is not in your outline, so write this down as your first bullet point there. Closed doors in our lives, closed doors in our lives should never be a private matter. Closed doors in our lives should never be a private matter. Paul uses this term. He says in the text, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware. Paul uses this statement, this idea of being unaware, only three times in the New Testament. And write this down. This statement is only used when he was about to announce some deep biblical doctrine or truth. It was used, he says, I do not want you to be unaware about spiritual gifts, and then spends a couple chapters dealing with the idea of spiritual gifts. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to speak about the second coming of Christ. This is serious. What Paul's saying is, you know, he's waving the flags, he's beeping the horn. This is important. This is important. I want you to hear this. And what does he say? He says, I prayed to come to you, but I can't. He says, I want to come and see you, but there's a door that has been closed. So what is Paul sharing? He's sharing his disappointments. Paul doesn't hide behind a lie. He doesn't say, yeah, I've been prevented from doing so because a lot of work. I'm an apostle. There's a lot of things to be done. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'll get there at some point. He doesn't try to make excuses and say, well, you know, John Mark didn't want to go on this missionary journey with me, so I'm trying to figure him out, and then we'll come. He doesn't say that. He just says, hey. There's a closed door. There's some disappointment in my life. The next thing we see is that closed doors involve a change in plans. Paul had every desire to go to Rome. He wanted to be there. But God had a different plan. 
A lot of us have our five-year plans put together, our ten-year plans. We know exactly when we are going to retire. I don't know about you, but every time I've gotten anywhere ahead of myself in my planning, not that it's not good to plan, but James tells us that we should not talk about going to this city and that city, planning on where we'll go, but we should say, if it is God's will, we'll go to this city. If it's God's will, we'll go to that city and stay for this amount of time. What I've learned is that when I start planning, in my flesh, and start saying, well, this is what I'm going to do. This is where, uh, when we're going to have to have the kids in college, and, and this is the, where we're going to be at with the house. The Lord changes those things. One thing I've learned is never plan on money. Never plan on money being there. As a businessman, early on in my life as a businessman, I, I used to say, all right, I'm going to make this much money this weekend so I can pay off this bill, this bill, and this bill. And then I'll get a call that weekend, and it'll be, boss, we got a problem. Um, the transmission went out on the van. It's not moving anymore. Well, there goes that money, that money, that money. Boss, we had to go buy ice cream for the dessert for the for the banquet because uh, well, he'll stay, he'll remain anonymous. He dropped all the cheesecake on the floor. What happens? There's a change in plans. Again, that doesn't mean we don't plan. Paul had a plan. He had a vision. He had a dream to go to Rome. But he knew that that plan could change. He says, if it is God's will that a way would be open, he was obedient like we learned last week to the will of God. Be obedient in your planning that says, hey, I am planning for my kids' college education. But if something happens, I'm not going to be devastated if, if we don't have money to do this, that, or the other thing. I want this in the 401k, but if that means I've got to work three more years, so be it. I want to be obedient to the will of God. God. He plans, but there's a change in plan. Well, what do we do with this? What, what do we do with this? There's a couple of things before I move to the final sub point in there is, is first of all, be transparent with your closed doors. You got a problem with your child? Don't hide it. Don't be embarrassed about it. Who hasn't had a problem with a child? You got, you want someone to confide in? Go talk to my mother. She'll talk your ear off about a troubled child. Parents, raise your hand. How many have had trouble with their kids? All right, I think we can talk about that one. How many of you have argued with your husband or your wife? I think that one's off limits. Okay. Who's had difficulty with a troublesome boss? I'll tell them tomorrow. Who's had difficulty with a friend? If that's the case, well, no, no, no. Who's had difficulty with money? And you know what we do? I, I loved what Chip Ingram said in our video this last week. He says, you know what we do in evangelical churches? We smile, we shake hands, everything's great, everything's right. I've only fought with my wife 47 times this week. That's down from 52 the week before. We've got no money. We're always struggling with this and that. The kids are running wild. We don't talk like that. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. Don't hide your stuff. That doesn't mean you share everything. Please hear me. That doesn't mean you get into the gross details of the fight between you and your husband, okay? Because you're usually going to be one-sided when you get into that. But you know what you can say? You can say, can you pray for me? Amanda and I are struggling right now. And the devil's having a heyday with us. And it's not, it's not important what the circumstances are, but we, would you pray? Hey, hey, there's no money in the bank account. We're overdraft all over the place. We're bouncing checks like basketballs. Would you pray for us? Would you help us? But we don't do that. We say, I'm fine, you're fine, everybody's fine, until we find out everything's not fine. Found out this week, uh, through a course of events, that there's a, there's a family struggling in their marriage to the point that, the, that they're considering divorce. And you say, well, who's that? It doesn't matter who it is. It just matters that we're not confiding in one another to stop that kind of thing. Christian fellowship can stop a marriage from going south. I've seen it. It's not that because I'm, I'm the preacher that I counsel people. All I'm doing is spending time with them and loving them and fellowship with them. It's not the title that you have and how you can save a marriage, but it's God using you to speak words of truth and affirmation, and encouragement, and equipping them and saying, don't give up. God is for you. Who can be against you? Don't leave your, your disappointments uh, in the dark. Make them transparent. But look at what he says next. He says that there's 
going to be a closed door. He says, I plan to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so. Let me go from the practical for a moment to the theological. And understand this, my third point, very short. Stick with me. Closed doors allow for one other thing, and that is for God to achieve his purposes. You sit there and you say, Paul, the door's closed. What are you going to do? Many of us as Christians walk around those closed doors and try to fix them on our own. Paul says, I have been prevented. Theological question, Paul, what is preventing you from being in Rome? What is it? He doesn't share. He doesn't tell us what it is. But this is what I, I pull from this as I studied this. There's a couple of things. Number one, this was a prayer that was made. Second of all, this was a prayer not by anybody in particular, but by an apostle. I mean, talk about a guy that's close to God, an apostle. This guy had gone to the abode of God in a vision, and he had talked with God. He had seen the resurrected Christ. This was not just some casual Christian. This is the apostle Paul, and he makes a prayer. This prayer is found in the inspired word of God. Some of us would be fearful if our prayers were in the Bible. I know I would be. Maybe you wouldn't. I'd be a little nervous if, you know, 2 Timothy chapter 7, Tim's prayer, I wouldn't like that. But not only is it in the Bible, but it's about the proper things. And not only is it about the proper things, but it's done in the proper way. He prays to God. He doesn't pray to anybody else. He prays to God and says, I want to go to Rome. And it's proper. It's done by a proper person. It's done in the proper way. It's for the proper things. You would think that God would say, proper, 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 give him a yes. What do we got for him, Bob? Yes, you can go to Rome. But what comes back? What do we got for him, Bob? No. One dollar in your make a deal briefcase. Go home. Good luck. That's not what happens. He says no. What happens when there are closed doors in our lives? Where are our answers when those come? There's a couple of answers that come with Paul. First of all, he was hindered. Why? Because first of all, a no in prayer would remind Paul that he's not necessary to the work of the gospel. Paul was a powerful apostle. He had a long desire to go and do and do and do. And what Paul was being reminded of when he was told no to Rome was that Paul, The Rome people got it on their own. They're doing fine. I'll get you when I get you there. But just because you're not there doesn't mean that the gospel isn't moving along. I am the God of the gospel. No man is. No man is central to the gospel. Only God. And Paul would be reminded of that. Now I'm speculating. There's nowhere in the text that it says why this happens. But a second speculation we can look at is that it would allow Paul to minister in other places. Paul hits a closed door in Rome. But you know what we see in the book of Acts? That an open door happened in Macedonia. Another door opens up in Ephesus. Another door in Corinth. Another opportunity in Galatia to the Galatians. All these open doors start. Understand this. One closed door does not mean that all the doors are closed. Usually the closed door means that there's an open door somewhere else we haven't looked. Some years ago we were talking about needing to replace the building that we had. We didn't have any room. And we were told that it's going to cost thousands upon thousands of dollars because we needed water and sewer on our property. And we knew we couldn't come to you guys and say, we need to spend about a half a million dollars to bring everything in underground. You'll never see it, but you, when you can thank God when you flush your toilets. That's what that half a million dollars went for. And so we went looking for other places to have church. We started looking at other properties. And door after door closed, we learned that we didn't have that much money. Big surprise. Number two, that everybody wanted more money for their property than probably what it's worth. Another big surprise. Door after door was closed. Until one day, Carol's working in her office, and some guys from Fox Metro come in. And we could have said, closed door. God doesn't want us to do anything. He's against us. He's, he's, he's not for us anymore. He's a mean God. And one weekday morning, Carol is at the office And guys come in and they say, we'd like to talk with some people. We we need to bring water and sewer to Wabansi. And and, and you're the only property that's feasible for this. And we know the story. They come in free of charge, put everything in. We got a brand new parking lot out of the deal, just cream on top. One closed door doesn't mean they're all closed. What it means is there's some other opportunities for ministry. That next meeting that we had as elders, we said, God has called us to Route 47 in Bliss Road, and we are going to serve the Lord faithfully in this location. Maybe God's closed the door in some things that you want to do, but he's opened some other doors to be a part of. 
The third thing is, is that a no would always remind Paul that there is spiritual warfare that is active. That there's spiritual warfare. Don't ever think that when you start praying for the right things and start praying to God and earnestly, he says, I'm praying at all times and constantly for you. Don't think that there isn't going to be an enemy that's going to attack you in that way. The Bible tells us that Daniel prayed and and an answer was to come. And no answer came for three weeks. and, And the angel Michael comes and he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've been delayed, but the king, uh, the, um, uh, the spirit over the kingdom of Persia has hindered me from coming to you. I want you to know if we close our eyes and we're being able to unveil what is happening in the heavenly realms, we'd see a whole lot of things we never would have thought would be possible. And that there are, are demons and there are things happening and there's a cataclysmic battle going on in the heavenly realms fighting so that you won't listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning this morning, and that you won't hear what God is wanting to say. And they're also trying to hinder our prayers. The final thing we see is, is that it may mean that there's some growing in our lives to be done. There's some growing. A couple of things that will hinder your prayer life. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, unconfessed sin. Wrong motives in James 4, 3. Laziness and not praying earnestly in James 5, 17. Busyness and not praying without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Ezekiel 14.3 says that if you have idols in your heart, your hints will not be heard. In Proverbs 21.3 it says if we are stingy in giving to the poor and giving back to God, God will not hear us in our hour of need. Unbelief in James 1 and 6, it says if we do not believe God, if we doubt God, we should, we should never think that we're going to get anything from God because we are a double-minded man. And the one that cuts so deep at home, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, if we do not honor our wives, love and respect them, that our prayers will be hindered. What hindered Paul from going to Rome? We don't know. But what a wonderful testimony of what we need to remember when it comes to why closed doors happen. And that's what we need to be encouraging one another. When a closed door happens, we should be saying, oh, better luck next time, Tim. You know, good luck with that thing. Or we come around each other and we say, hey, maybe there's some spiritual warfare I need to be praying for you about. Hey, brother or sister in Christ, maybe there's another ministry, another opportunity for you to be a part of. Maybe it means that there's some areas, and this is the hardest one. Are there some areas of sin in your life? Are there some issues in your life? Hey, hey Ted, you say your prayer's being hindered, but I've seen how you, how you talk with Mary. And that doesn't seem like it's a God-honoring relationship. That's a hard fellowshipping time. You're not honoring to your wife. And First Peter 3, 7 says that if we don't do that, that our husband, as husbands, our prayers will be hindered. That's what we do to develop perseverance when closed doors happen in community. The final thing, I said it was short and it is, is that real fellowship is designed to produce a crop of righteousness. What does fellowship produce? It doesn't just produce an ability to put on our sign, we're a friendly church. That's not what it means. It develops into a couple things. It's designed to produce a crop. He says, in order that I might have a harvest among you. Paul says that this fellowship with the Christians in Rome is going to create a harvest. This word harvest is translated from the Greek word karpos. Karpos, which literally means fruit. Well, what kind of fruit is supposed to come from it? Paul does not say. Karpos is the most generic word of fruit. You would call it a karpos salad when you have mixed mixed fruit together. It's not grapes. It's not apples. It's not peaches. It's not bananas. It's all kinds of fruit. So when we look at the Scriptures, what is to be produced from our lives in fellowship with one another? Three things. Number one, fruit involves your attitudes. It involves your attitudes. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You want to know what should be involved in your fellowship? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-respect. You want to know if we're a church that fellowships together? Are those attitudes a part of who we are? Do we love one another? 
Do we have joy in our heart of getting together? Do we have patience and peace when people rile us up? Do we have kindness and goodness even when people have done us wrong? Do we have self-control when we are angry? The fruit of the Spirit are these things. And the Bible says when you fellowship like that, it, there's nothing in the law that can take that away. The second thing is in our activity. In our activity. When a believer lives for the Lord, there's going to be fruit that comes from it. Romans 6.22 says the fruit of holy living. It speaks of the holy living, but now you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The benefit that you reap, there's that harvesting that leads to holiness and results in eternal life. Praise is another one. Hebrews 13.15 Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that confess His name. Giving is another one. We give because God has given to us. We give as a first fruits to the Lord and first fruits to one another. Why? Because God has given us so much. The final one, as I close, is the way of additions. The way of additions. Fruit has been, uh, has been used as a metaphor for people coming to know Christ. Why does Paul want to go to Rome? Because he wants to win people to the Lord. Let me ask you this question this morning. When you fellowship with people, is there the right attitude? Is there the right activities going on in your fellowship with the 10 or 12 that you're gathered with? Is there the right additions? If you're not, if you're not doing those things and involving that equipping and establishing and all the things we talked about in week one, you're hanging out with Christians. You're not biblically fellowshipping with them. Paul says that real fellowship will change lives. And it is my prayer, it is the elders' prayer in this church, that we will be a church not known for the programs, but it will be known for, for a, a centralization on God and His Word, but also out of that, that it would be a church that would love one another and fellowship. I've got an assignment for you as I close, and that is this. Today, when you walk out of this place, before you leave this place, you pray, Lord, give me some words to say that may impact the next person that I walk up to, whether it's the first time I've met them or the thousandth time that I've met met them. I want to be able to change lives with biblical fellowship. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we praise you. We praise you for being able to be brought into a family. We praise you for being able to be a part of the family of God. And Lord, I pray for us as a body this morning. I pray that we would be a church that learns and loves to fellowship together. Father, I pray that it would not be small talk, that it would not be just uh, meandering conversations about nothingness, but that we would want to be involved with one another. But Father, I know in a church, of, uh, a church family of over 600 people that that means that we have to be transparent. That means we have to be open. And Lord, whether it's in our small groups or in our ABFs or, or in just dialogue in the foyer, that we would be open. Lord, give us wisdom when to be open and when not to. But don't ever allow our pride, don't ever allow our, uh, our unwillingness to follow your spirit to keep us from sharing the things that are most near and dear. That no one would be unaware of what we're going through. That they can pray. That they can lift up. That they can encourage. Lord, I pray that that would be known of us. That we would be known as a church that loves to fellowship with one another. Lord, we can't do it, but by your Spirit, through the bond of peace, that unity that we can only achieve through you. So we ask that it would fall upon us today in a new way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and close.